Consult is a monthly podcast about software developers who work on Apple platforms to create client products. Join us each month as we talk business, Swift, Objective-C, contracts, App Store, and all things Apple. I'm your host, David Kopeck. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome to the January 2016 episode of Consult. We have our first developer tool-focused episode with Fosco Morado from Parse joining us. And I just want to remind everybody, please leave us reviews on iTunes. That's the best way you can help the podcast. Now, you might notice in the interview that I'm very supportive of Parse. I want to assure you that I'm not being supported by them in any way financially. I'm just a big advocate of Parse, so sorry if I sound a little bit too positive. But I really do love Parse, and Fosco is great at explaining it, so I hope you enjoy the episode. So my guest today is Fosco Murado, developer advocate at Parse. Fosco, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me, Dave. It's great to be here. So before we get into Parse, and there's a lot to talk about with Parse, Let's talk a little bit about you. So how did you, going way back, get into computing, and what did you do before you were at Parse? Uh, well, I, w- I was very lucky to have um, my father's father uh, was kind of ahead of his time as an engineer. Um, so when I was five years old, uh, my family received um, our first computer. It was a Texas Instruments 99, TI-99. Um, so I started to actually learn basic programming at an extremely young age. And uh, my brother and I both got into it, uh, but I stuck with it forever. Um, after the TI-99, we had a Commodore 64, and then basically every generation of computers that went after that. And I always stuck with it. So I was you know, programming in my early teen years um, and took that all the way through. Um, I started working professionally like in 1997 um, at an internet provider uh, doing web design. Um, I've done a lot of like, computer tutoring through that time frame. I've, I've basically been working a long time, like 19 years. Um, and through that, I've done a lot of different consulting type work. Tell us a little bit about that, because you, you mentioned that to me before we, we did the interview, that you had some experience in consulting. So how did you get into consulting, and what was kind of the peak of your consulting career? Around uh, 1999 time frame, um, I tried to do some web design consulting, and I went down and I met with this client in Philadelphia and spent the afternoon discussing things, and then I gave them a quote for their website. And they turned around and gave me a job offer instead. Nice. Uh, so I, you know, I moved down to Philadelphia and worked for this company for a while. Um, about two years later, I tried to do something on the side, a consulting gig for a, uh, it was a multimedia CD-ROM, which was a thing back in the day. Yeah. <laughs> and I got this, you know, very sizable contract uh, to do this CD-ROM. And basically, like, left my full-time job and um, built this project, uh, did another addition to it for them. And then I kind of wanted to do that uh, going forward and do multiple of those. Um, but, you know, when it comes to uh, consulting, you really need to be able to get yourself out there. 
Right. And you need you need to know what you're worth, and you need to be willing to charge for it. Um, and at that time, I really I didn't have it. Okay. Okay. So a- after a while, I just went back to working for somebody again. So you had the technical side, you didn't have maybe the sales side. Yeah, yeah, it was definitely not my interest to like take other people's money. Okay. So what <laughs> led you on your journey to Parse? Um, well, I was working for um, a company in uh, Pennsylvania where I was living uh, that does like consulting and contracting for both commercial and government clients. Uh, so I was doing a little bit of on both sides of that. Uh, and that was a lot of fun. Uh, and I wound up using Parse in a client project. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we did this like drop-in web component. Uh, and it was using this interesting framework where we didn't have much access to the underlying system. Uh, so we used Parse uh, to call out from this JavaScript web page to go get some extra information that we need and put together a neat little UI. Okay. Um, then... I happened to see a post on Hacker News, which was one of my favorite websites, sure. uh, that Parse was looking for a solutions architect. And when I read that posting, I felt like it was crafted just for me. Huh. Uh, it was very cool. And they had this um, thing where you could apply via an API. You create a JSON payload and send it to this endpoint. And that's how you apply for the job. Okay, that's very cool. So I decided to do that, and it just kind of steamrolled. I had a phone interview, then another phone interview. Then they flew me out to San Francisco uh, for four and a half hours of interviews with five different people. Uh, And I really prepared for all of that. I had built several Parse apps. I built something interesting just using their cloud code feature. Then I built an iOS app that integrated with it and an Android app that integrated with it. Uh, so I had all that to show them, and uh, it just you know flew from there. Well, before we get talking about Parse, I just want to say to the audience that I'm a big user of Parse myself, and I'm an advocate for Parse to clients. I always tell them um, what a great solution it is for our project, and uh, nine times out of ten, they agree in the end, and we end up using Parse. And I've been using Parse myself since 2011, so really, which was like the very, very early days, and it wasn't clear who was going to emerge as the market leader in the kind of uh, back-end-as-a-service space. And um, I'm glad I I chose Parse because really, uh, you guys have eliminated a lot of the other competition over the years, it seems like. Uh, Of course, there's still a lot, though. But for people who don't know anything about Parse, can you give the kind of elevator pitch? Sure. Uh, Parse is, you know, we, we... Have kind of stopped calling it backend as a service, but okay. I think it's a, it's a great term for it. I mean, it allows people who only know how to do front end uh, application development, um, iPhones, Androids, websites, to get to create the whole experience, to be able to store some data on the server um, and create social uh, applications. Okay. Uh, you know, I also like to say, well, whenever you create a, a major application, you have the front end and you have the back end. And if you don't want to set up all your servers and configure firewalls and worry about security um, or hire someone to do that for you, you could just use Parse. And what does it mean to be a developer advocate at Parse? What's your job like on a day-to-day basis? Uh, that's also been something that's changed over the years. When I first started 
uh, when Parse was a startup uh, in San Francisco, we had we did incredible amounts of support. Uh, we answered every single question uh, from developers and interested customers um, every day, uh, and it was uh, very very hectic, uh, but it was a lot of fun and it was very interesting. And it's a great way to learn all of the edge case scenarios when you're constantly fielding support from developers. Uh, after, as it started to to grow really insanely, and we got acquired by Facebook, uh, our ability to really cover every base uh, evaporated. Uh, and now we have a, a team of people who all focus on different areas, uh, but basically... You know, we do go to events. We do have like a presence. Um, we do cover some su different support channels, uh, but a lot of it is about creating content, creating blogs, creating example apps, and then getting involved in the different departments of Parse and influencing the way the product grows based on the feedback we get from other developers. Why do developers choose Parse over rolling their own backends, typically, the, and especially those who are capable of rolling their own backends? So you mentioned earlier front-end developers that don't have backend experience. Parse is an obvious choice. But why choose Parse if you have the skill to do your own backend? Uh, I guess it, a lot of it is time savings, mm -hmm. um, like efficiency, um, which is why developers use any of the tools that they use. Um, Especially if it's just some, if you just have this idea uh, burning up inside you and you need to build it, uh, you know, you can accelerate that development, cut short the time a lot by just using Parse. Because just within a couple of minutes, you, you have that whole glue wrapper from your client interface to your data. Now, Parse is really big in the iOS world. Oftentimes, when I take over a project, I'm happily surprised to find that it has a Parse backend. Um, what other worlds is it big in? Are, is it as big in Android as it is in iOS? Um, in terms of traffic, they're they're pretty comparable. Okay. In, um, you know, but Android just has sheer size of of the install base. Sure. Uh, but definitely, iOS is strong. Android and uh, JavaScript, lots you, of JavaScript. But you guys support a lot of different platforms, which is something that's come in handy for me. Uh, I've had to build recently a Twitter bot that also used um, the same parse backend as our tw as our iOS app. And so I was able to leverage your PHP SDK. So you, it's incredible how many different platforms you guys have official SDKs out for. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, we do .NET as well, which you know covers Windows and Unity um, and a couple other, uh, like Xamarin. Um, we have an IoT SDK. Um, yeah, I actually wrote the PHP SDK. Well, thank you. Which was a lot of fun. Yeah, no, it was, it was very straightforward to integrate, too. It was really great. Mm -hmm. So, talking about um, some of your competitors, how does Parse position itself against something like an uh, Amazon Elastic Beanstalk or um, an Heroku? Uh, Heroku is a little bit different, of course. We used to call that more of like a platform as a service versus a backend as a service. How does uh, Parse kind of fit into the competitive landscape of other companies doing uh, similar plays? It's it all comes down to that simplicity. Um, 
like Heroku, we definitely don't try and uh, differentiate. Like we are now partnered with Heroku, mm-hmm. um, and we encourage people um, to put their cloud code implementation on Heroku, um, and that's you know pretty simply because when we created cloud code. Uh, we built like a Node.js-like environment. Uh, but we can't keep that up to date uh, and performant like uh, the rest of the JavaScript um, community can and ha- like Heroku does. Um, so we actually encourage people to use Heroku to host their, their server logic. Um, but with AWS, I don't know if I'm, you've probably tried to use AWS. Sure. I just find it to be incredibly complicated. Yeah, it is surprisingly, and it's surprising so many people use it given how complicated it is. Yeah, um, I mean, there are people who just specialize in, you know, handling AWS. Right. Um, so, I mean, Parse just doesn't require any of that uh, crazy amount of setup or knowledge uh, to get up and running. I think your answer was a good segue into talking about some more technical topics. You mentioned cloud code. Um, for for people who are new to Parse, what is cloud code, and um, how is it different from code that runs right in your Parse iOS app? Okay. Well, I mean, a lot of times you don't want to trust the client application. Sure. Um, so well, pretty much with anything you build, if you weren't using Parse, you're going to write logic on the server side. Uh, whether it's in your database layer, it's you know on an endpoint somewhere, you're going to write some logic, and you want the server to control that. So Parse needed to uh, give you a way to do that as well, um, rather than just hold your data and give you client interfaces to that data. We needed you to be able to set up database triggers or functions to be able to run logic on the server. Um, so Cloud Code gives you a method of setting up uh, triggers. If an object is saved, you get you can run some code before and reject it or validate it in some other way or mutate it. And you can run code when something is done, like after saved. Um, you can uh, do that when, before and after something is deleted. And you can run just general functions where you post some parameters to a function from your client you run this uh, code on the server side, do something with it, and return something back to the client, which the client can then use. And it's really become best practice to do a lot that people were doing in client code now in cloud code, right? Like, for example, on my apps, I put almost all push notifications into cloud code. Um, is, that, is that fair to say that a lot of things have been moving to be a best practice to do in cloud code that used to be done in the early days of Parse on the client side? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, just from a security standpoint and from code reuse, uh, it always makes sense to put as much as you can into cloud code and just facilitate that through functions and other ways from the client. But it is a bit of an additional skill set for developers, right? And so uh, developers actually need to know some JavaScript to write cloud code, of course, right? Uh, Yep, yeah, it is all in uh, Node.js. but if they know other languages, there are ways uh, to do that as well. Uh, we have something called webhooks, and you can basically just tell us uh, where to, to call you if we have one of these triggers, and you can have that server running you know, using any kind of programming language you like. Now, 
I don't know how much you're allowed to reveal, but can you tell us a little bit about how Parse actually implements its back end? Uh, like the technology stack involved. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Uh, so it was originally uh, Ruby on Rails, okay. uh, the whole API and the whole website, um, with MongoDB as the database storage. Um, and it grew very quickly. It's uh, when I joined, I joked that um, during setup, you basically install all the databases. Hmm. Um, I mean, Cassandra, uh, Redis, MySQL, and Mongo, wow. and and Memcache. Wow. Okay. Uh, so at least five different, and the uh, the platform has just grown. It is it is absolutely massive. Uh, the amount of stuff that goes in, that goes on at Parse to support um, six hundred thousand applications. Wow, wow, that's, that's a huge number. <laughs> and um, about a year and a half ago or so, uh, they undertook an effort to rewrite the entire API server from uh, Ruby and Rails uh, to GoLang. Um, I remember reading a blog post about that. Yeah, a lot of very interesting technology went into like being able to uh, move single API endpoints over one at a time and test them, and it was uh, it was very interesting. Right, right. But of course, for developers that are listening that that aren't familiar with Parse, you don't need to know about any of this to use Parse. Right. One of the big benefits is um, you're not you don't have to know anything about the data store. You just need to know the APIs from Objective C or Swift to to take advantage of it. Right. Yep, yep, that's all. You can just use your client language plus some JavaScript and and go on that way. I mean, it does help to, you know, to understand a little bit about MongoDB and how uh document storage engines um hold their data and and what they're good at querying and what they're not good at. Mhm. What what sort of if if let's say somebody is an intermediate user of Parse and they wanted to get more of that knowledge, what would you recommend as a resource? I would basically uh, look at some of our open source. Okay. Uh, so we've basically been open sourcing everything that we do. So all of our client SDKs are open source. Um, you know, all of our examples. Uh, we release a lot in that regard. Um, so you know, just uh, swinging at the fences, like trying to figure out where the limitations are. Mm-hmm. That's that's usually pretty interesting. So how have things changed at Parse since Parse was acquired by Facebook? That's something, that's an interesting topic for sometimes clients when I, when I mention to them, oh, you know, um, I think we should use Parse as the back end for your app. And by the way, Parse is backed by Facebook, so you know it's not going anywhere. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> how, how have things changed since, since Parse was acquired by Facebook? And um, how does that maybe affect the future direction of Parse, if at all? You know, when when we first got acquired, we didn't know what was going to happen. Um, but it was obvious that they they wanted us all to to stick around, uh, that they liked us, um, and it became really quickly apparent that like nothing was going to change. That that Parse was just going to keep going full steam, and Facebook wasn't interfering or or really getting involved in Parse much at all. Um, and it's pretty much stayed that way. I mean, we've continued to just launch big feature after big feature, and there's really not much uh, impact in that way. Um, I mean, the great thing is we got a lot of extra talent from Facebook. Mm. Like, 
we've had people come join Parse. They wanted to to work on Parse. Um, so we've we've had a lot of great people join from the the Facebook side. Now this has nothing to do with you being acquired by Facebook because I think it existed before. But there's also a great integration between of of login with uh, social login of Facebook or Twitter with Parse. Um, can you tell people a little bit more about that and how that works? Um, it's it's pretty simple setup. Um, uh, Parse had. Uh, Facebook and Twitter login uh, even before acquisition. Um, that's the same thing that you would do if you were building it yourself. Basically, uh, we will take an access token from uh, Facebook or Twitter and we will call the respective endpoints to uh, make sure it's valid for you. Um, there's not all that much to it beyond what you would have to do uh, if you were building it yourself. And one thing that you have in Parse is this um, ACL model, this access controlless model of security for both um, objects as well as users. Um, can you, and that uh, is really easy to use. How does that actually work from a technical standpoint? That was, ACLs are one of the really cool things that, that I eventually learned about. So the ACL is a like an object that you can configure on the client side to say which users or which roles have permission to read or write from this specific object. And when the back end receives this, it basically uh, deconstructs it and splits it up into multiple columns. Mm-hmm. Um, it puts the people who can read uh, in one column and the people who can write in another column. And the way that that winds up being enforced is that when you make a read query, uh, it looks at your um, user and your roles and it adds some extra constraints to the query to say, you know, uh, whatever you queried for has to be true, but also um, some of these conditions have to be true in this read column, which is either it's a public object or your user ID can read or one of the roles that you are in can read. And so the same thing happens with writing. If you're doing something to an object, it does some querying on the, uh, the write column to make sure that you have permission. You, we touched on it slightly earlier with our cloud code discussion, but what are some of the best security practices for a, a iOS developer using Parse? Generally, you want to uh, limit access as much as possible. Um, so if you have a class of items that people are going to be looking at inside your application, uh, if you can, I would uh, funnel access through a cloud function if they want to you know, get the, the posts or whatever it happens to be. Have them call a cloud function uh, rather than having them query the posts class directly. Um, this is, uh, there was a recent example where somebody, um, was building something where the content had to be approved. Um, and so they were concerned about how to make sure that this approved flag couldn't be updated by anyone else. And that's pretty easy to do with a before safe, uh, trigger where you can look at who's actually making the change. You could find out if they're trying to edit the approved field, and you can uh, make sure that that doesn't happen. Um, However, if people are looking at that list of data, they would be able to query it whether the field was approved or not. Um, 
So why not have them call a cloud function that says get posts? And then in there, you query a more selective set of data and send them back just what you want them to have. Yeah, I actually saw that on Ask Parse Anything. I think you answered a question about it, right? And for people listening, Ask Parse Anything is a series that, that Fosco appears on where um, Parse just takes questions from the developer community and answers them in a video series. It's, it's very helpful, actually. There's been a lot of great answers on that. If you're interested, you should check out the Parse blog, which I'll link to in the show notes. Um, you guys recently launched a tvOS and WatchKit SDK. Um, how does a developer who's building an iOS app integrate with tvOS and WatchKit? Do they need to actually include two separate SDKs, um, one for each target of their app, or um, can they still use a single SDK? Uh, I do think that the TV target would have to use a different framework because uh, mm -hmm. they, they are slightly different. Um, but yeah, um, a good friend of mine that works on the team, Nikita, uh, built all of the, the TV and watchOS stuff. And uh, we've been really waiting to see you know, some interesting things come out of it, what developers use it for. The main iOS SDK is built in Objective-C, of course, right? It's been, it's been around for quite a while. Uh, but there's really great support for Swift, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, you can pretty much do everything from Swift, but there's also some interest internally in, you know, doing some native Swift development. Would that mean rewriting the whole SDK in Swift or just doing part of it in Swift? I think it means rewriting everything, okay. um, which, you know, means it might not happen, but okay. I, I think it would be a lot of fun as well. You guys have a really great lens into trends in iOS development. So what kind of trends have you seen from your side? Um, and maybe you can talk a little bit about how much Swift adoption you've seen from your side. Uh, it's, definitely, it's definitely hard to track. Um, you know, there's been a lot of interesting types of applications that we see built on, on our system. Um, I don't know if if we can really spot too many trends. Okay. Um, but there's a lot of interesting things that we see popping up. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of games. <laughs> okay. A lot of games. A lot of Unity development um, is picking up, and you know, it's funny, but we see a lot of applications that are um, in the the medical marijuana community. Oh, okay. <laughs> interesting. It's, it's really interesting that there are a ton of social networks about, uh, about marijuana that have uh, popped up on Parse. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Parse has really great tools just for doing social networks in general. I've worked on four social networks, kind of unfortunately, many social networks over the last year and a half as client projects. And wow. um, yeah, yeah. Um, it's been kind of my year of the social network, and all of them have Parse backends, and um, that's one thing I can really say strongly about Parse and advocate to anyone. If you're working on a social network that's um, maybe uh, in its early stages, Parse is a great way to get to at least get started, maybe take it the whole way. But that leads us into a great discussion about scaling, because that's one of the chief benefits, right, is scaling on Parse is really easy, right? Uh, yeah, it can be. Um, I wanted to ask you, um, you know, if, since you've been a heavy user, like what kind of limitations have you run into 
with a Parse app. You know, it's funny. I just had one. Uh, so, and it has nothing to do with anything technical, but HIPAA compliance. And actually, you were the one who answered the question. Uh, Parse <laughs> is not HIPAA compliant. And I had a potential project. Uh, a local client reached out to me about building a app that needed to be HIPAA compliant. And we had to unfortunately uh, rule out Parse in the proposal for that reason. Um, from a technical standpoint, there's really been no limitations for me with Parse. Um, I think that some developers have a concern about how expensive it can get when you do scale. Um, so I, Parse is, maybe that's a good segue into talking about the pricing model. I mean, Parse is free until you get up to more than 30 requests a second and or cer certain storage limits, right? That's correct, yeah. Um, 30 requests per second, and that's all aggregated on the minute level. So really it's 1,800 requests in a minute. As long as your application is doing less than that, you could stay free. Um, plus, we we allow you to do push notifications to a million unique devices per month for free, which is a huge limit in many ways. And you have to get up to a lot of users really before you start hitting against those barriers, right? Yep. Yep. Absolutely. But once you do get to those barriers, how does the pricing work? Uh, basically, you pay $100 a month, and you get an additional 10 requests per second. So you would go from 1800 a minute to 2400 a minute for $100 a month. So uh, you go. asked me about other limitations I had hit. I did hit a limitation with a client over the summer where we were trying to just add so many objects into Parse so quickly because we were trying to import um, a, a fairly large uh, set of statistics on mm -hmm. an hourly basis um, where we were having some, some timeout issues and we were also having issues running within the allotted time that a cloud code function can run, which if I remember correctly is 15 minutes. Is that right? Uh, we're using a background job. Yeah. Background job. Yep. So yeah, background job is 15 minutes. Um, and yeah, that can be an, an, an uh, a concern. Uh, a lot of times we recommend using the import, um, functionality through the data browser, um, but if you're trying to do something automated on the hour, uh, that would make that difficult. Um, yeah. So that's one of the things is like Parse has certain limitations, which exist because Parse is hosting you know 600,000 apps, right, right, um, and so you know some trade-offs had to be made um, to keep it alive and. Uh, working within those limitations and figuring out the right solution for how to work with those is interesting sometimes. But I think uh, consultants in general um, have a leg up um, because they are programmers. They have a task they need to accomplish. They will figure it out. Um, whereas a lot of the, the target audience for Parse is like people building their first app. Okay. Um, so I think they can get more frustrated with things, but you know, consultants are more serious. They know what they're trying to accomplish. Um, and Parse is fantastic if you, you know, find and uh, figure out what those limits are, and then work your application into those limits. That makes perfect sense. I, I earlier you mentioned, and this is kind of an aside, but you mentioned that games are becoming big on Parse, and I'm wondering why a game developer, and this is for my own education as much as the audience, um, would choose to use Parse over, um, like, I guess, Game Center or uh, maybe for cross-platform compatibility? Or why are they rolling their own instead of using one of the high-score services? Or what kind of data are they storing? Um, yeah, I mean, lots of various uh, uh, things. And, and a lot of times you can use multiple 
Um, I think a lot of games use parse heavily for push um, mm. because it's free. Um, they you know use some of the simple analytics that we offer, um, and a lot of them just uh, store game state. Like they just spam game state at us. I see. Okay. Which is not the best you know way to use parse, um, but it works. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I mean that's something we haven't really touched on, but but parse is a great way to have a push notification server, really. Um, and I've used it extensively for that. One th- another small criticism I'll say, even though I love parse, is mm-hmm. that setting up um, push notifications is maybe a little bit more um, I don't know involved than than it could be. Um, but a lot of that's on Apple side too. Yeah, I, I definitely put most of that on Apple. Um, it is. I would call it a nightmare. Yes. yes. <laughs> I would <laughs> to, agree with that. Yeah. To go through the entire uh, process of setting, getting all the certs and uploading everything and testing. Yeah, it is, it is a nightmare. They've made it very difficult. Uh, what would you like to see Apple change about that process to make it easier for Parse developers? I think it should be easier. I don't know if the whole uh, certificate signing request process is entirely necessary. You know, maybe they could simplify it to just use a couple of uh, secret key combinations. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I don't expect them to change anything there. I, I think it'll stay that way. We've also had some issues on one app with troubleshooting um, push notifications. And that's um, that, that has to be kind of a combination of factors between issues going on to actually get those error messages right from Apple as well as from Parse. I saw that you guys recently launched a brand new dashboard for everything in Parse. Um, can we expect to see uh, new additional help with push notification errors? I I hope so. I, I think we do have some interesting developments coming with push um, in the next uh, half a year or so. Um, so push, it, push troubleshooting is really tough, uh, especially with... Um, the system that we've built and how we you could basically support multiple apps inside the same parse app and you you upload you know five different certificates um, and when you send a push notification we try and make you know the best effort as to which uh, combination of things uh, you're trying to do mm-hmm. uh, and sometimes you know we might get it wrong um, but most of the time you know we get the notification and we send it to Apple and then it's out of our hands and we have no way of of knowing what happened to it. Um, And Apple offers this feedback service that you could listen to, um, but for our scale, we never got into that. Um, So we actually don't listen to the Apple feedback service. I see, Um, okay. To find out when a push notification, when a device token is no longer valid. Um, so that's something that I hope that we do address, and uh, I think there might have been some changes with Apple where they might give us that information in a different way, and because of that, we might be able to handle it. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'd love to see some some enhancements to our push product in the next uh, future development. Now, if I'm a new developer coming to Parse and I have no Parse experience, what would be the number one tips you would have uh, for new developers that are just getting started with parse um 
Interesting. iOS developers specifically, since since this is uh, mainly what the show's about. Okay. Um, I would uh, definitely try and, and look at what we offer in terms of, like, take one of our sample apps, mm-hmm. like the, the AnyPhone app that uses uh, Twilio. Um, take that, get that up and running. Um, go through our quick start. Uh, make sure you use Composer as a package manager. Um, uh, take a look at like our parse UI uh, library, which yes. has uh, the query table view controllers and the login and sign up view controllers. Mm-hmm. Um, get it. Get a nice basic understanding for how some of this stuff works before um, you know trying to build something that you're going to try and like put out in the store. Yeah, the Parse UI library is awesome, by the way. I, I use that in all these social networks I've been building, um, and it it's really saves a lot of time. Um, it has its limits. Uh, like if you want to do things like on a UI table view, uh, have multiple sections, you have to hack it a little bit. Um, yep. But, but it's, really, it's really a very nice library, and especially with login and sign up and with basic table views, it can save you a ton of time. And I inherited an app built on Parse last year that was basically a clone of your um, AnyPick sample app. And mm-hmm. they had taken the AnyPick code and they had like hacked on top of it in a way that didn't make any sense really. <laughs> and uh, and they could there were so many places they could have used the Parse UI library and they rolled their own instead and so they ended up in a situation where they didn't have Parse users instead they had their own user class in Parse. Oh wow! That okay. was which is a disaster for security and also just makes the whole like sign up process a mess because then they rolled their own version of the Facebook SDK which was a different version than the one that Parse integrates and it was just. It was a nightmare. Uh, yeah. So, so a big tip I would have for people is, che- like, like Fosco said, check out the Parse UI library because that will save you a lot of time and um, also possibly a lot of headaches. Yeah. Um, so, looking forward, um, what can iOS developers expect from Parse in the future, if anything? And I also want to speak a little bit to clients because one thing I do hear is, you know, oh, it's great that Facebook backs Parse. But occasionally, I actually get a client who's concerned about using a product um, owned by Facebook. Uh, sometimes they have misguided concerns about privacy, um, things like that. Um, what would you say to kind of alleviate uh, those concerns in the minds of potential consulting clients? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I understand, and I've I've heard those those kinds of concerns before. I mean, I, I believe them to be, like you said, misguided or unfounded. Um, in my experience, there is um, there is no access from Facebook to any parse data. Um, we're just in AWS like everybody else is, mm-hmm. so there's nothing special there. Um, we've had a lot of great support from Facebook in terms of you know uh, employees and um, press, and you know we go to all their events. Um, they seem to be really excited about us still. Um, so I would say jump in, but there's also some stuff coming very soon that even if people were not willing to, um, host their data, um, with Parse and Facebook, uh, they might still be able to benefit from the great, like, development experience of using the Parse client SDKs in the near future. Okay. Bit of a cliffhanger. 
Is there anything about Parse that we didn't cover that you'd like to let developers know, especially developers who are maybe um, unfamiliar with Parse coming into listening to this episode? Um, I would say, I mean, there is no faster way, no faster way to go from having nothing to having the, like, let's call it a bootstrap of um, your, the whole app experience from client to server. Mm -hmm. Uh, there is no faster way to build a prototype or an MVP or to succeed at some hackathon than by, uh, using parse. Yeah. I, and I think that's totally right from my experience too. And I'm not a developer advocate for parse. So, uh, I totally (laughs) endorse everything Vasco said. And for developers who are concerned about scaling later on, um, what should they know about parse and scaling? Um, so it's it scales pretty smoothly up until about 600 requests per second, which is um, pretty massive. Yeah. Um, after that, we we like to to talk to people and and you know maybe help them make their app a little more optimized. Um, and we have various things coming out in the very near future to to address those larger scaling concerns. Out of curiosity, and I don't know if this is publicly available information or not, what's the largest app, um, so maybe you can't answer it, that, that uses Parse um, uh, that people might know about? Um, there's a lot of interesting games um, that are huge. Um, I do want to say, you know, because I was just talking about things scaling smoothly up to 600, we do have apps that are in the thousands of requests yeah. per second, you know, like greater than 2,000 requests per second. Um as far as apps, we do list a lot of different customers on our sites, um, but the one that jumps to mind is a very popular game called Township. Okay, sure. Sure. Yep. Okay. Well, Fosco, I want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Is there anything you want to plug um, while you're on the podcast? Besides Parse. Uh, I mean, of course you want to plug Parse, or maybe there's something specific about Parse. Um. I mean, check out our Heroku stuff. Check out uh, some of my recent posts about using Node. Um, you know, find me on Twitter uh, at New Fosco, and uh, you know, stay tuned because, um, like I was trying to tease, we have some amazing stuff coming up this month. That sounds really exciting. Well, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you very much, Dave. Thanks for joining us. I hope you enjoyed the episode. I hope everyone's having a wonderful 2016 so far. And I want to remind everybody that if you have feedback for me, please reach out to me on Twitter. I'm at Dave Kopeck, D-A-V-E-K-O-P-E-C. I've got several great episodes coming up in the next couple of months for you here on Consult. And I'll see you next month.